Good afternoon. It's Friday the 5th of May 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen, as usual, for Friday. Welcome to the program, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And also from uh, Damascus, by video link, we've got Vanessa Bailey joining us as well. Now, we're going to get kicked off here with uh, all-cause mortality because, uh, well, this came out on Wednesday, uh, the latest ONS statistics on uh, mortality in the UK. Uh, and, well, if we look on the right-hand side, Again, we've got this massive spike in uh, excess mortality. Uh, this is what the Office for National Statistics had to say. The number of deaths registered in the UK in the week ending 21st of April 2023, week 16, was 14,024, which is 22.1% above the five-year average. It's quite an incredible situation. Let's just look at what the mainstream press said about this. Mm. That's it. Shocking. Okay. So in the meantime, what have we got? We've got, well, this is going back a few months, uh, but nonetheless, full fact, no evidence for a rise in sudden deaths or that COVID-19 vaccines are the cause. Uh, and then we've got from new scientists here, there are thousands more UK deaths than usual, and we don't know why. So here we are. Uh, we had massive excess mortality all the way through 2022. Uh, we're now in a process of excess mortality on all of you know, running into the summer of 2023 as well. Nobody seems to care. The mainstream media isn't talking about it uh, every day, it seems, Patrick, and this might be purely anecdotal, but every day it seems there's another report of some well-known personality that has dropped dead at the age of 30 or 40 or 50 uh, suddenly. Uh, total silence, but we've got the, 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 the uh, censorship industrial complex there, uh, you know, dismissing out of hand any questions about why this is happening? Well, the fact checkers say there's nothing to see, so it must be climate change, Mike. Well, indeed, <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, now, it's not just in the UK either, and we've talked in the past about the fact that this is happening in Europe as well, but so I just wanted to bring Canada on screen here. Uh, and in this case, uh, excess deaths in Nova Scotia recently hit peak uh, since the start of COVID-19 pandemic. And this is what it says in, uh, just under this little video here, Statistics Canada tracks Ex excess mortality, uh, the number of actual deaths above what's expected. The last time Nova Scotia had a week where the numbers were lower uh, than what would normally be anticipated was in May 2022. So they have not had below average excess mortality since May 2022, and yet nobody asking any questions. This is a global problem, or at least I'm going to say it's not a global problem. It's a problem, it seems, uh, that, that is in the countries that mostly a distributed vaccinations. That's that's just a suggestion. We don't know the answer to that yet, but nobody's really investigating it. So there's a bit of a vacuum there. Well, you've got to look at the independent variables, Mike, globally, and what what are the, uh, the variables that are common amongst all those countries, as you said. Massive uh, experimental jab rollout. Yes. So who knows? Um, let's uh, move on to the other news today. And of course, the mainstream press, uh, this is their top story. Thank you for voting, said the Conservatives this morning. Uh, well, in fact, the question is how many people did vote? Well, not very many. 32% turnout. Now, this is, I suppose, fairly normal for uh, local elections. Last year, I think it was 33%. 2021 was about 36 37%, something like that. Uh, but it seems uh, like the results are not going well for Rishi Sunak uh, or the Tory party. Uh, this was his comment this morning. I'm disappointed. Uh, they're panicking that they're losing the blue wall, as it were. 
I mean, I don't think there's any more to say about this. It's not as if uh, the Labour Party or the Liberal Democrat Party are offering anything uh, better. Uh, it looks like there are more independents being voted for this time, which is always a positive development. Just remember, the wall's not actually blue, Mike. It's it's a it's a coat of paint. Yes. So it's something underneath it that could uh, come out at any moment. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Now let's uh, come on to the story that was just breaking while the uh, UK column news was on on Wednesday, uh, and that, of course, is the Kremlin drone attack. So yeah, the massive story. Uh, most people have probably seen this. So uh, apparently, uh, they're calling it. Well, the Russians are calling it a potential assassination attempt against Vladimir Putin. The Senate residency. Uh, which is the second residency of the president. Uh, and supposedly, according to uh, Dmitry Peskov and others, the spokespeople in the Kremlin, Putin was not there uh, when these two small drones came. And uh, I think it was two uh, and the, a small explosion here. And they say they thwarted uh, half of the attack, apparently. So who knows what, uh, what actually happened. What's interesting about this is, and you have to be uh, wary that the Kiev uh, regime in, has been issuing all sorts of threats and hitting targets inside Russia, including one of the uh, uh, officials in Kiev uh, three days before this uh, put up a tweet uh, offering a $500,000 reward for anybody that could uh, do a drone attack ahead of the Victory Day parade. So the timing of this is, of course, very symbolic, right before mm. uh, Victory Day, which I believe is May the 9th, which commemorates uh, the Soviet uh, troops uh, marching in Berlin yes. for victory. So let's take a closer look here at this story and see. Well, here's the the, the footage we have, one angle here. And uh, so we'll see, apparently, there's a, a detonation there, and uh, so, and from a different angle there, as well. So there's there's a few different uh, pieces of video footage that are circulating on this from Russian media and also on uh, Telegram, Twitter, and in the mainstream media as well. You can see the embers burning there on the dome. So we'll see uh, what we el what else we have here. Look, so Robert F. Kennedy Jr. saying Russia announced today that the Kremlin has been attacked by armed drones, presumably uh, from Ukraine. Imagine how we would respond if Russian-backed forces or anyone launched a drone attack or drone strike on the Capitol. We must stop these deranged attempts to escalate the war. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the only politician in the race for 2024 that's commented on this story, which is shocking in itself. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say quickly, what if a firecracker or an M80 went off on the White House lawn or a drone tried to drop a quarter stick of dynamite or something like that? The whole country would go into lockdown. Uh, there would be 9-11 rhetoric starting to circulate mm -hmm. and the, all the it would total hysteria in the mainstream media. That's how America would react for a firecracker. Um, so just bear that in mind. Uh, good to hear that from RFK. And just also on the day that this was announced, the day after, uh, the Kiev post office, the national post office, launched this commemorative stamp of the Kremlin on fire. Uh, is You could say this is bad taste, or is this just an outright provocation? Well, the question is, how did they generate that uh, artwork quite so quickly? Maybe an AI app or something like that, maybe. But they, they, they were very quick off the mark on this. So, I mean, that's kind of suspect as well. So, again, uh, the Western uh, conversation is about false flags. They're saying yes. it couldn't have been Ukraine. It had to have been a Russian 
false flag. And I think we we have a video from a, a U.S. Uh, local affiliate news program where he, he's he's uh, just struggling over which angle to take on this story. It has to be anything except for Ukraine actually doing it. Roll this clip. So, who could be behind it? Experts have three theories. Three three theories here. They say it could be a resistance group within Russia. Could be a false flag operation by Putin's own government to justify more attacks on Ukraine, or it could be a warning shot from Ukrainian forces. President Zelensky denies that, and Senator Warner seems to agree after meeting with the head of the CIA. The committee expressed you know, whatever intel we get, uh, we need to hear it as soon as possible from, from the agency director. So, that, so that's very interesting because that immediately makes me sense. So we've got the stamp issue and now we've got common narratives building, right? So let's just have a look at uh, a minute or so of an interview that Nigel Farage did yesterday with Hamish de Breton Gordon. Uh, and we're going to hear that his story is exactly the same. So the question is, is this uh, rapid reaction mechanism back in operation here? Because this sounds like a common narrative on both sides of the Atlantic. Let's uh, have a listen to this. But I don't know. But somebody perhaps with a better idea than me is Colonel Hamish de Breton Gordon, OBE, former commander of the 1st Royal Tank Regiment. Hamish, great to have you back on the show. Um, what do you make of the events that took place at the Kremlin yesterday? Well, I think it's absolute hogwash and bunker that uh, Russia is claiming that it's the US or the Ukraine responsible. You know, why, why would they do it? Uh, why would they tempt Russia to escalate? And the Russians have said for some time they're going to escalate, they're going to go nuclear. Where is the tail fin of that drone with a Stars and Stripes banner on it? I think there are two other more likely explanations. You've mentioned the Russian false flag. That would be plausible. That would then give Putin an excuse to escalate into some form. The third likelihood is that it's Russian separatists. There are a lot of very hacked off Wagner Group criminals who don't think much of Putin these days. And there is a growing surge of people in Russia who want to see the end of Putin. So this idea of uh, separatists uh, being possibly behind it as well. So anyway. That was an amusing clip. I really enjoyed that. Um, so well, well, look, just before we move on, I, just just because I'd like to get a little bit of context in Hamish de Breton Gordon just briefly. Uh, Vanessa, uh, w what's your experience with him? <laughs> well, I mean, he's the wheel out, isn't he? He's the group of, of I think there's three former military, and of course, James LaMazurio was one of them, um, who were wheeled out, most of them, by the way, with Jersey or Guernsey family names, which is an interesting little um, fact there. But uh, throughout the Syria conflict, of course, he was wheeled out as the so-called chemical weapons expert, despite informing us that our fridges were a threat to us because they can basically be converted into um, bombs. I, I mean, he's, he's the epitome of a chinless wonder um, that is a mouthpiece for intelligence agencies and the UK FDO, particularly in Syria, as I said, connected to the chemical weapons narratives. Also connected to our dear friend, Dr. Knott, of course, who, who started the whole ball rolling about Syrian Arab army atrocities in Syria. Um, all of them work together with Toby Cadman, another name that people might recognize in medics under fire. 
So, you know, he's a well-known face in the um, narrative management team. Yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Britain's own WMD uh, specialist. Yes. Um, so the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that was another false flag. You remember when that happened, and immediately the default position in Western media and politics is, must be the Russians. They must have blown up their own uh, pipeline. So it's, it's the, the automatic reflex in the West is, it's Russians have done it to themselves. Pretty much anything of substance that happens, that's the uh, the blame game immediately. So yes. it, it's it's disingenuous on many levels. We'll show you a, a pattern of terrorist attacks inside Ukraine in a minute. But let, we, we should just not uh, underestimate the seriousness of this situation here. New York Times, the U.S. is wiring Ukraine with radiation sensors to detect nuclear blasts, not just uh, bombs, but also dirty bombs and, get this, Mike, uh, they're able to attribute blame with these new high-tech. Oh, are they? Yes, indeed they are. So let's look at this. The United States is wiring Ukraine with sensors all over the country that can detect bursts of radiation from nuclear weapons to a dirty bomb and confirm the identity of the attacker. Isn't wow. that great? That's incredible. This is uh, the top-end AI systems here, Mike, so we don't need the OPCW uh, anymore. Uh, in part, the goal is to make sure that the Russians, uh, that Ru if Russia detonates a radioactive weapon on Ukrainian soil, its atomic signature and Moscow's culpability would be verified. So this just precludes that anybody else could have possibly uh, set off a dirty bomb. Sorry, and but correct me if I'm wrong. Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, uh, and you, and in fact, most of the nuclear material, or at least a significant proportion of it, was managed by Ukraine. Yeah. during the Soviet time. So, so is it unlikely that Ukraine would have uh, material that had a similar signature or identical signature to Russian material? Hi very likely. Or as they say in the intelligence community, highly likely. <laughs> so you're right, Mike. Very well uh, spotted there. So it's just ridiculous when you think about this. But they're setting up the narrative that if Putin's backed into a corner, he used a tactical nuke. You've heard all this, right? Mm -hmm. Even though Russia hasn't ever used a tactical nuke in the field, this is seen as some law of, uh, of warfare now that Putin right. will use a tactical nuke. So you can see the whole narrative is being uh, set up here. Now on the drone attack here, this is the, uh, the U.S. ambassador or the, um, the Russian ambassador in the United States, Anatoly Antonov, and he's saying the U.S. Uh, lacks the guts to condemn the drone attack on the Kremlin. Now notice this, this is true, no Western leaders have condemned this attack. So immediately they don't have to because they default to the Russian false flag theory. This is how crazy the environment is uh, right now around this conflict here. But look at this. Let's put some context on this. This is the second overnight drone incident at Russian refinery. Um, so in, Rost in the Rostov region, we've had two kamikaze drone terrorist attacks. What else can you call them but uh, terrorist attacks against civilians and against civilian infrastructure? Kiev is basically stum on this, but it seems to be obviously coming from Ukraine. Uh, but here, look at this. They're canceling the uh, Victory Day uh, parade celebrations in some cities. Uh, and there's no fly zones along major cities for any drone uh, at all in, in the sky. So these are the various locations. You can see on this map, Sevastopol, April 29th, uh, Volna, May 3rd, um, Ilsky, May 4th, uh, Novoshenk, oops, we go back, um, on on May 4th and uh, Stavropol on May 4th. So you can see a pattern of these sort of 
what you might, what the West would call terrorist attacks, but uh, they don't have a name for them yet because they don't even want to mention that they're even happening in the Western media, which is really strange here. And 21 Russian cities cancel V-Day uh, parade as tit-for-tat drone wars heat up. This is Zero Hedge uh, here as well. So, you know, there's there's a whole pattern. And Bryansk, two trains, Mike, were just uh, attacked and derailed uh, with IEDs. Uh, this is the Bryansk region just over the border uh, in Russia on the Russian side, northern Ukraine. So, I mean, and, and not only that, in this other attack here, Belgorod, four civilians killed in a drone kamikaze attack. Uh, just, I believe, in the last two weeks. That plus the uh, shelling of civilians in Donetsk, uh, in Donbass. So, I mean, that that's what's actually happening. So, uh, you know, how is Russia going to take this? Is this going to strengthen their resolve, Mike? Or are they going to, you know, cower back? and Or are they going to push, is it going to motivate them to go forward? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not sure that, uh, I think they've got a fairly fixed plan uh, I'm not sure that any event is going to uh, really change that, but they're certainly not going to take a step back. Yeah. So I, I wonder, Mike, and the other question before we leave this topic, Mike, if the U.S. doesn't know, because we saw from the intelligence leaks before that they uh, they did talk uh, Kiev out of uh, an attack in, in Rostov because it would look bad mm -hmm. for their public relations. And so that was intercepted intelligence the U.S. said it had. So the U.S. must know these things are happening, So it, including the Kremlin uh, drone attack. So the question, did they did they know and not say anything or did they do they not know? And have no control over Kiev. Mm -hmm. Two fundamental questions, both of them equally as frightening, if you consider the ramifications of a head of state getting killed in a, in a drone attack, uh, assassination uh, attack. Um, uh, where would that lead? World wars have been started over such things. So, and uh, just quickly here, so Germany is also uh, feeling the heat. Here's Olaf Scholz with the t-shirt guy. And uh, this is what uh, Scholz is saying. Well, it's important for us that weapons we supply to Ukraine to defend itself aren't used to attack uh, in Russian territory. So he's drawing a red line there, Olaf Scholz, major weapons to Ukraine, risks NATO becoming a, quote, party to the conflict. I think, well, they're already a party to the conflict. That's German Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz. And let's just take a look here. You know, Britain and others are ribbing Germany that they're not doing enough. They're not sending enough aid and weapons to Ukraine. Here's the uh, statistics right here. Uh, this is from the uh, International uh, Institute uh, for World Economy. And they're saying gov this government supports Ukraine. You see the United States way out front there um, in, the, in the billions. And Germany is second. Uh, and the UK is third, I believe. Yes. And France fourth. So actually, Germany is the second biggest supporter uh, of Ukraine. So I think that's an important point to underline because uh, it seems like they're all ganging up on Germany. They're not doing enough to support the regime uh, in Kiev. Yes. Okay. Thanks for that. Now, uh, Vanessa, let's move to Syria. And well, there's been a visit this week. Uh, yeah. Um, President Raisi of Iran. Um, this is the first time that uh, an Iranian president has visited Syria for 13 years, so one year before the regime change war started uh, against Syria. Um, speaking to Sayyid uh, Mohammed Morandi, who's actually one of the chief advisors on the delegation, he told me uh, that the economic cooperation between Syria and Iran has to some degree been neglected for many reasons, of course, one of which 
Iran has also been under sanctions. But Iran has now basically reached a point where it's dealing with the sanctions. And actually, as Mohammed said to me, Iran doesn't care about sanctions. So it's, it's, it's a momentous occasion. It was seen very much by uh, local authorities and local officials as a strategic victory um, for both uh, President Assad, Syria and Iran. And if we look at the memorandum of cooperation that was agreed upon by the two presidents, if you just move forward. Um, so they signed a memorandum of understanding for a comprehensive long-term strategic partnership plan between the two countries, which includes agricultural cooperation. When I was in um, Iran back in February, it was fascinating to see the number of projects that are ongoing um, for farming, for agriculture, and now there appears to be this growing cooperation. Rail network cooperation, again, interesting, similar to the Belt and Road Initiative, um, potential for rebuilding and uh, building new rail networks from Iran uh, to Syria and throughout the region. Mutual recognition of maritime certificates between the two countries. And it's been confirmed sort of in the last 24 hours that basically there is, of course, an agreement on uh, military development, and that includes air defense systems similar to or a little bit more advanced uh, than the Russian S-300s. So uh, then also civil aviation development between the two countries, oil and energy resource cooperation. Of course, Iran has really been the big stopgap for Syria with the United States occupying the Northeast and the majority of Syrian vital resources, including oil, communications and information technology partnerships, and a memorandum of understanding between the National Earthquake Center in Syria and the International Institute for Seismic Engineering in Iran, addressing the issue of the recent earthquakes back in February and how to um, react to them if they're going to happen again in the future. Here again, you have the president's uh, meeting. And I have to say, there was a public outpouring of support for the arrival of President uh, Raisi and his delegation, high-level delegation. Um, and after the businessman forum in Damascus, just moving on, Mike, um, or during the businessman forum in Damascus, um, Raisi basically stated that the Iranian people and Iranian officials have always stood by the Syrian people. Uh, several decisions were taken in the last meeting with President Bashar al-Assad. Fifteen documents um, were signed between Tehran and Damascus. The joint meetings between Syria and Iran are useful for implementing the agreements between the two countries, and it has been agreed that they will continue um, with regular meetings in the future. Iran has turned the sanctions against Iran into opportunities, and there is no reason that Syria cannot do the same, particularly with the help of partners like Iran, Russia, China. Um, this visit will constitute a positive turning point to develop the relations between the two countries. The impact of this visit will impact on the economic relations between the two countries and the region as a whole. Interesting statement there, and the region as a whole. Um, and then let's look at the, the history, which is sort of being repeated here with this meeting. The late President Hafez al-Assad, the father of Bashar al-Assad, was asked, why did you ally with Iran against Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war? And he replied um, very portentously, as you can see, 
just for history, the day will come when Iran will defend us, or you, at a time when the Arabs will be plunging their daggers into the chest of the Syrians. So very important uh, two-day meeting. Um, and what was Israel's response? Well, it didn't come after uh, the meetings, it came before. So this was the first attack, I think, towards the end of April. Uh, this was in uh, Homs, where they targeted um, a civilian uh, fuel center and uh, trucks and fuel tankers and warehouses, again, impacting on the scarce uh, energy availability for civilians inside Syria. So let's have a look at that. Sorry, <laughs> بعيد بعيد Do you have any idea what they were saying there, Vanessa? Um, no, I mean, basically, they're just talking about moving away from the area. I didn't get all of it. Uh, my Arabic is not that good. Um, and so basically, it was April the 29th at uh, um, 10 minutes before one in the morning. Uh, Israeli enemy carried out an air attack with several missiles from northern Lebanon, targeting points on the outskirts of Homs City. Air defenses, of course, intercepted some of the missiles, but some of them hit target, uh, resulting in the injury of three civilians and the destruction of civilian gas station, trucks and tankers. So, as I said, this is another attack on uh, essential civilian supplies inside Syria. And then on 23.35 on May the 1st, so just before the arrival of President Raisi, um, Israeli warplanes fired two waves of missiles from over the Mediterranean Sea, targeting Aleppo International Airport, Al-Naira Military Airport, the scientific research facility and military factories of the Defense Ministry in Asafira, east of Aleppo. Um, and Aleppo Airport was temporarily closed down. I was also told that a number of humanitarian relief store and warehouses uh, were hit, either accidentally or, or uh, you know, deliberately. But anyway, the shutting down again of the humanitarian lifeline for the victims of the earthquake back in, in February that are still homeless and still largely reliant on uh, foreign aid coming in. So this was the Israeli reaction prior um, to the meeting. We haven't had any attacks uh, since the meeting or during the meeting. Of course, Israel isn't quite that stupid. Um, but uh, obviously, the Israeli aggression was discussed during uh, the meeting. We haven't been told what was said on that yet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Vanessa, did they fire from mm -hmm. uh, Lebanese airspace uh, when yeah. they, they did? So they flew, they used yeah. Lebanese airspace to, to, to yeah, hit targets yeah. in Syria. Yeah. Yes, and the other point that we should make, Vanessa, is that, that uh, by targeting sort of uh, energy infrastructure, uh, they, okay, the airport as well, but but the first attack was energy infrastructure. This is mm -hmm. uh, on top of the. I mean, that is a direct attack on on 
any any idea of humanitarianism because because uh, you know there's such a shortage of 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 oil mm. short, shortage of fuel shortage of electricity this absolutely impacts civilian lives yeah absolutely um, you know and this is a regular occurrence not only by Israel but also by the armed groups by ISIS of course which is under the control of the US they will regularly attack the meager convoys or oil that are allowed uh, to Damascus, for example. So yes, it's it's a constant battle against the Syrian civilians to prevent them receiving any in energy resources at all. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. And yes. And it's happening uh, almost every day. Attacks from Israel, which nobody talks about anymore because they're just so regular. Well, indeed. So we'll move on. Now, last uh, week, Mike, uh, we, uh, we covered the Nord Stream Pipeline investigation uh, by French journalist Freddy Ponton. And uh, part two of that investigation uh, has, has come out. And uh, I have to say, it's uh, pretty incredible. Uh, the evidence, it's a lot more focused, and it identifies the actual components uh, of the mission. Here's the article. We'll put that up on screen. Part two, smoking guns, Nord Stream sabotage, secret teams, revealed, this is an article at 21st Century Wire by Freddie Ponton. And if we go and look at this article, it's uh, pretty incredible, the level of uh, detail, but also uh, the really specific in all of the different components of this mission. So he's identified all of the uh, actual equipment, the teams, the diving teams, the components, put them at bow tops with photographic evidence as well. And we have AIS transponder, open source data as well that corroborates some of this and also uh, different components that would only be possible um, in this particular environment at that depth uh, and also the involvement of the oil and gas industry and the military in what's called dual use technology. Uh, so this is an incredibly detailed report. Uh, great job uh, by Freddie Ponton and we're gonna bring him uh, on to the program to talk about this investigation. I think we have him uh, on the live link. Let's bring him up if possible. Hello, Freddie. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm not sure if you can hear me, guys. Yeah, loud and clear. Yeah, we got a good Fantastic. signal. Uh, Freddie, um, uh, incredible report. Um, we want to give you a chance to go through this and just explain exactly, uh, really prioritize what's here. What are the smoking guns? And uh, we'll be also be able to offer some visuals as well and also uh, give you a chance to just explain uh, what's, what's the most explosive findings that you found so far in this, in this investigation. But uh, we'll bring on here just to, uh, just to start, just to review uh, what we showed last week, uh, the means, the motive, and the opportunity. Uh, we went through all of these points, the divers in Panama City, NATO's bow top uh, drill as cover, the sonar buoys that were dropped later and for detonation, Norway's involvement, in the mission and also the US and Norway cornering the gas market into Northern Europe. And so you've taken it uh, another level now. Uh, we'll just update this. We now have the diving teams, which you'll talk about in Baltops, uh, and then also the Norwegian uh, class ship that was there, mission capable for all of the components to do this job uh, at that depth. Uh, and also the NATO Special Submarine Rescue Systems. We'll talk about that as well at Baltops. And you have the open source data for the P-8 Poseidon, U.S. Boeing Poseidon, dropping the sonar buoy uh, two days before the explosion uh, in September, exactly as Seymour Hersh 
had reported uh, in his February 8th article on Substack. You've got that information there. And also the EU's Green Deal hydrogen industry, the absolute mapping of the future of the European energy market to comply with net zero and UN Sustainable Development and Paris Accord standards. That is all in the offing uh, in this report, Freddie. So just start, uh, give us an introduction, Freddie, tell us um, about this. How is this report different from the first one? Well, thank you very much, Patrick. Uh, well, actually, part two of this investigation was really about the operational aspect of what is, according to uh, Seymour Hersh's report, a CIA-led operation which was conducted during the NATO uh, naval exercise known as Baltop uh, 22, Patrick. So the idea was really, uh, first of all, to identify possible NATO member states who, from what we can tell, uh, would have provided logistical and intelligence, but also operational support to the Nord Stream pipeline uh, sabotage. So we truly focused our investigation on various uh, diverse teams from different countries that are uh, attached to the NATO mine countermeasures task group known as MCM uh, TG. So these guys really participated in exercises, multiple exercises, and ranging really from explosive ordnance disposal, but also improvised uh, explosive devices. But also uh, they got involved. We were able to see that they were also involved in the handling and operating of unmanned underwater vehicle known as UUV. Uh, and then we, we found out later on that they were also uh, carrying out decompression exercises and submarine medical rescue exercises during Baltop 22. So all in all, Patrick, is this logistics, but also this training, of course, are very auspicious and represented for us what we can tell a great opportunity uh, to provide a cover for the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. And we'll just put back up on screen, you have a montage here of different diving teams. So we have U.S. Uh, Navy diving teams, SEALs, as well as da Royal Danish Navy. And the U.K. also has uh, special diving uh, teams just for this particular type of job, correct? That is uh, absolutely correct. You know, they're very well equipped. But uh, again, really, the, the essence of this job is, is really corporations and uh, multiple, several member NATO states really bringing equipment skills and expert teams to the scene. And then as far as the, the ship that helped to carry out this, now Seymour Hirsch said it was a Norwegian minesweeper, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And you have uh, narrowed that search down to a likely candidate. We're not saying that uh, we know for sure, but in terms of where it is, its position, the timing, its capability, uh, this is a Norwegian wrong class patrol vessel. Uh, uh, tag is A537. Uh, according to your report, uh, Freddie, this is one of the most capable vehicles and you can place it at the scene of the crime? Well, there's more than one. I mean, we, we obviously uh, are releasing the information in, in, a, in a very small amount, not to overwhelm the, the public with too many informations. But uh, really, we, we went after the, diver, the diving teams, and that's how we actually found some of the vessels. So it's only one of them. There's many others. But uh, we really can place the uh, relevant mission-capable military ship uh, that are, you know, obviously uh, uh, taking on board specialist diving teams uh, that are in position to, to conduct 
conduct uh, uh, an explosive uh, uh, and uh, a sabotage, if you will. So you get on one side a U.S. explosive ordnance disposal mobile unit, which we talked about in part one, known as EODMU-8 and others as well, squadrons. And then we have also the Royal, uh, Royal Danish Navy divers assigned to NATO Mine Countermeasure Stars Group, which uh, and we can see them really conducting exercising alongside the Norwegian uh, rain class patrol vessel known as Magnus Lagaboti. So uh, these are really divers that we believe to be part of a pre-deployment team scouting the mission perimeter and preparing and marking the site where these explosive uh, charges uh, needed to be laid. So bear in mind that this is an ongoing investigation. So we will also have to unpack other events that took place, not only uh, on the 8th of June, but when we uh, uh, saw this exercise from the Danish Navy and the the US Navy, but also 15th of June, you had a six hours dive involving the mine countermeasures uh, task group. Again, the US and the Danish guys are there. And then uh, we also will have to look at uh, uh, really this multi-dive operation uh, starting really at the 8th of June all the way even in August we have some events taking place and 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 on and on until the explosion time so this is really uh, interesting because it helps us uh, shaping up this investigation Patrick and one of the other things is NATO's special submarine uh, rescue project which has just come online really in the last year or two and this is this makes this mission possible and uh this is this is an important component, isn't it, Freddie? Explain why. Because this isn't just about you know divers jumping off the side of a boat, planting some C4, and then swimming back to the surface. You're talking about getting through the concrete casing of the pipelines. You need all sorts of equipment. This is a long job. This ne- means you have multiple teams possibly being rotated uh, to the surface and down to the floor as well. This is a sophisticated job. Uh, but go ahead and explain this, and we'll play the video uh, in the background as you talk, Freddie, of uh, one of these uh, from Form Energy Technologies, the Rescue Submarine Action. This is NATO approved. This is a NATO contract. But uh, just take us quickly uh, through this this part of the story. I'll try this. It's a complex topic, but uh, yes, the NATO submarine rescue system, Patrick, is a NATO program sponsored by the UK Department of Defense, and it truly belongs to the UK, uh, to the Norwegian and, and the French. And it's really basically a mini sub, which was developed by a company called FET, based out of the UK. I mean, they're a global operation. And it's operated by John Fisher Defense Group of the UK as well. And uh, what we found is that uh, the DTXG, this new new special operation diving squadron from the Royal, the British Royal Navy, actually are the one that operates uh, this uh, uh, submarine rescue system. And uh, uh, we can see that they've been training with the Norwegian uh, Coast Guard, for example, and uh, these guys have been reporting as well the Norwegian uh, using uh, this uh, particular submarine during NATO Baltop exercise. So, uh, uh, we were not only suspecting, but expecting to see the, the presence of this NATO submarine rescue systems. And uh, what I would add just to, 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 to find, finalize this topic is that uh, we were talking about dry combat submersible and the ability for uh, repressurizing uh, the entire hyperbaric space within the dry combat submersible. So we saw US SOCOM, the Special Operation Command of the US Navy, investing money and time in trying to identify even to the point of a, uh, a commissioning a comparative study uh, 
to to see whether this was possible or not because you can start basically the decompression process you know during the missions and you gain a lot of time but uh, we lost kind of a track with the fundings and it, when it, what I would say dark uh, as a funding. So we would assume that for a layer of security, a layer of the uh, one go, if you will, extractions of the diving team uh, to be placed in the recompression chambers on board of the mothership, then I think it makes sense for these guys to be there. And it's well explained in the article. Yeah, and the project went dark, so possibly went under classified status right before yes. uh, bell tops. That's Very right. interesting find, Freddie. And now for the Poseidon. Uh, so Seymour Hirsch said that uh, a P-8 uh, was dropped uh, there uh, over this site afterwards, uh, two days before in September. Uh, and so we have the open source data. We'll credit Monkey Works uh, for providing the open source data. But just explain very quickly, Freddie, what we're looking at here. Well, first of all, the uh, the P8A Poseidon uh, is uh, is uh, is delivering a, a sonar buoy, according to uh, Simon Horsch. Now, the sonar buoy is an expandable sonar system that is really dropped or ejected, I would say, out of a plane, and then the buoy is equipped to detect underwater sounds and basically has the ability to transmit uh, a signal via radio. So the, the PA can take uh, up to 124 Sonoboy on board. And we know that looking at the specs of this uh, flight, it has undergone a, a quite a significant design modification that allowed him to carry out missions, uh, what I call low altitude uh, missions. So it's very interesting, this uh, plane indeed. And uh, the, as you mentioned, Monkey Rex has done a fantastic job at uh, showing with open data source that uh, uh, we were able to track uh, different uh, uh, I don't know, around just the world. Bri- but uh, just one- briefly, sorry, Freddie. Uh, it's, you, we're looking at the air refueling uh, over the U.S. base, I believe, in Germany or Poland, and then the plane is coming back to Bornholm Island, exactly where the spot is of the Nord Stream pipeline, drops the buoy, and then heads westward via Iceland. Uh, and this is all on here on the open source data. So th- does this, this pretty much matches up, doesn't it, with Seymour Hersh's article? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So that's the, that's the sonar buoy. And then, uh, Freddie, now, uh, lastly, on the, one of the main points of this article is uh, the energy question. So blue and green hydrogen, uh, who benefits? So this is a much bigger story, isn't it? This is about the future. So Nord Stream is just a piece of a bigger story, is what you're saying. <laughs> it's, go ahead and quickly explain this to us. We just have a, a minute or two left. Yeah, obviously, we, we, we saw the, uh, the, the kind of excitement just after on the back of the uh, explosion on the 26th of September. So we got the Polish and the Norwegians basically been very excited. And we starting to track down with our investigation a little bit the background and the long term project coming out of Europe. And we can really identify Norway, Germany being very involved in a, in a major hydrogen project. So there's a, a complete ongoing investment investment into the uh, 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 southern barren seas and other blocks that belongs to Norway, which will provide basically uh, this, uh, uh, this gas that is so necessary for hydrogen project. So what they have in mind is basically uh, a green hydrogen project. That's the long-term, long-term program. But they initially will start with a, a blue hydrogen program. So I'm not going to describe what it is. Go on to the article and you see exactly what it's about. But what's important to see is that there's a real complete uh, 
reshaping of the not only the uh, gas market, but the hydrogen market and the electricity grid uh, that accompany uh, this kind of strategy and energy strategy. So it's very important to see that Norway, Denmark, as, uh, Germany these are all, and Poland as all countries benefiting really from uh, the cancellation of the Nord Stream pipeline battery. And it's all totally in line with World Economic Forum, uh, the, the sort of things that they want to see, the transformation in Europe that they want to see uh, going forward into their uh, fourth industrial revolution. Lastly, Freddie, what do you make of these reports from the Danish media about a Russian ship? Uh, they, apparently they have photos, but they won't show them of a Russian ship that was in this busy shipping lane. They say that it was there four days before the explosion. Here's the BBC opining on this as well. Nord Stream report puts Russian Navy ships near pipeline blast site. This suddenly appears, this uh, information after all this time uh, from Danish intelligence. What do you quickly, what do you make of this story? Well, it's, it's uh, again, you know, this uh, this has to be part of the uh, the warfare on information. You know, if you conduct, uh, if you have NATO member states uh, conducting basically an act of terrorism, which is nothing else than an act of war on other NATO member states, you got a huge problem in your hands. So you got to come up with any kind of story that's going to be uh, able to counteract the efforts, not only Samuel Hirsch's, but my efforts uh, and many other people's efforts to try to prove that this was indeed uh, a, a US-led effort, but also had a lot of help from NATO member states. And as far as the uh, submarine and the uh, uh, submersible, the Russian submersible, you know, they, I think I found it. And if you look on the backdrop of your, of your video, you'll see it is uh, laying down just behind Mike there. I think it's a blue and red submarine, so we'll find it there, I think. Yeah, okay. Somewhere, somewhere in Plymouth <laughs> Harbor, sorry, right? Yes, indeed. Well yes. spotted, Freddie. I re appreciate you. He's, a, he's, he's watching Plymouth very closely. Yeah. Thank you. Listen, Freddie, all, all jokes aside, uh, this is an incredible piece of uh, investigative journalism. We really appreciate your hard work on this, and uh, we look forward to It's an ongoing investigation. I know you're, you're doing more work on this, and we'll try our best to, to report on what you find uh, when you find it. Okay, thanks. Uh, let's uh, move on then. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. But please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially on ukcolumn.org itself. Now, uh, we're going to come back to the interview that uh, Nigel Farage uh, did with uh, Hamish de Bretton Gordon, uh, because uh, he, they began talking about China. Uh, let's just have a listen to this. But Hamish, I just wonder about this war. A very interesting comment overnight I've seen from Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running to be the Republican nominee. Now, he's not going to win, but he's a very intelligent young man. And he's made a point overnight. It's been on my mind. He's basically saying that Putin has now become China's proxy. We've driven Putin, or he's driven himself, into the arms of China. And that effectively, what China want is for Putin to continue this war as long as possible, to exhaust those that are backing Ukraine in terms of munitions, and goodness me, we're down to just a few thousand artillery shells in this country as we speak, and that this is all somehow a cover for China to invade Taiwan. What do you make of that theory? And, and do you feel, as I do, that increasingly Putin frankly can't move or do anything without the Chinese saying yes? 
Well, Nigel, I agree. It's a really complex situation. The Chinese are definitely playing a role here. But the fact that they're not arming the Russians, I think that is probably a significant thing. I agree that, um, you know, the Chinese, it, it sort of gives them a red light to invade Taiwan if they see fit. But also, you'll know far better than me, I expect, that China is so reliant on the US economy, on the European economy and the British economy to keep its strange brand of communism going, that it has, you know, it, it, it doesn't want to see the death of those. I also agree with you that Putin is trying to draw this war out as long as possible, throwing the young men of Russia into the meat grinder so that the US in particular start to lose faith in the Ukrainians, stop giving them the, the weaponry they need. And of course, again, you know, with, with the US and the UK having elections coming up in 12 months, you know, politicians here and over the water are looking that way. That's why it's so important that we enable Ukraine to get this over with as quickly as possible. And, and I'm confident if we give them the ammunition that they're short of at the moment, we've already given them the tanks and everything else that they can prevail. But you're right, China is where we really need to be focusing once Russia is sort of out of the game, which I hope they will be soon. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just going to say, Vanessa had her head in her hands for most of that, and we'll, we'll get some thoughts from Vanessa in a second. But I just want to break this down a little bit. Let's look at what he had to say, because everything that he said was 180 degrees out. It began with this comment, Ukraine gives China, the Ukraine war gives China a red light to invade Taiwan. Well, of course, you don't say that means that they're not going to invade. You get it's. You would say it gives them a green light. So he's got that 180 degrees out. First of all, right. <laughs> so second of all, China is reliant on the U.S., EU, and British economy. Well, that's really an interesting statement because just on Sunday, uh, this past Sunday, uh, the chief executive of Mercedes-Benz uh, gave this to one of the German Sundays. He said the major players in the global economy, Europe, the U.S., and China are so closely intertwined that disengaging from China makes no sense. This is for the Germans. That would be unthinkable for almost the entire German industry. He was absolutely saying 100% that in fact it's German industry, EU industry, British, US industry that is reliant on China just as much, if, if not more, in fact much more than the Chinese economy is reliant uh, on us. Uh, anyway, uh, Hamish de Bretton Gordon went on to say that Putin is throwing the young men of Russia into the meat grinder so that the US starts to lose faith and stop giving them weapons. Of course, it's not the it's not the Russian troops that are in the meat grinder at this point. It's the Ukrainian troops that talk about the meat grinder uh, and and so on. So total propaganda. Total propaganda. But the 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 key point that he wanted to make was bomb China. That's basically what it boils down to. That's what he's calling for. So we've got Hamish to Bretton Gordon. We might say that we wouldn't expect anything other than that type of rhetoric from him. But frankly, uh, Nigel Farage is clearly GB News's chief war propagandist now because he's demanding, he's calling for in this interview uh, conflict with China. He's not asking for cool heads and and common sense here. He's sounding like a Fox News neocon pundit. I mean, yes. he slipped into that role. Well, he has because, of course, he just spent the last couple of days with Donald Trump. So, so he's he's absolutely swimming in those uh, in those seas. Talk tough, look tough. No. So, what they're saying is the domino effect. This is just a rehash 
of the Cold War, that if, uh, if we don't stop communism in Laos, it's going to spread to Vietnam. So that sort of crazy thinking is what got the U.S. bogged down in Vietnam for 10 years, a total disaster. So what they've done is just recreate this binary, uh, democracy versus authoritarianism. If we don't, if we don't stop Putin in uh, Ukraine, he's going to steamroll to the Atlantic over Europe. And then he's going to give the green light, uh, not the red light, sorry, uh, to, to China. And they're going to, so look, if you ask the average European, Mike, you ask, if China took Taiwan over, would that change your life at all as a European? Does that have any effect on your day-to-day -day life? The answer is no. The only difference in the United States is they're so heavily propagandized that this is somehow a red line and the, it can never be crossed. And so, Taiwan is a sacrosanct, uh, embryonic, democratic uh, project. Must be protected at all costs, even World War III. I mean, total uh, propaganda. We're saturated in these fake propaganda narratives. It's unbelievable. Uh, Vanessa, I'd be interested to get some thoughts from you. Well, I mean, it's it's just pure comedy. I couldn't even watch it. I mean, it's gobbledygook. And anyone that is watching this and thinking that it is salient, intelligent analysis it needs their head examining. We're going to war on the word of, or on the analysis. Oh, God, I mean, it, it just takes Orientalism into another whole realm. Yes. Victories. China's weird, you know, China's strange brand of communism. I mean, what? <laughs> Sorry. Yes, I know. Even... I, I understand. <laughs> We're a lot more communist in, uh, in Europe and Britain than China is. Uh, I think that's absolutely at, right. At, at the moment. But yeah. look, victories right around the corner. Victories we just need to send. A little more weapon, a few more weapons, a few more rounds, and they'll be marching through the Arc de Triomphe. Uh, where, where, in what, marching on Red Square? Is Kiev going to march victoriously through what Red Square? I mean, what what are they talking about? Honestly, indeed, indeed. Okay, uh, Vanessa, let's uh, move back to the Middle East then, and uh, GCC recent GCC meeting. Yeah, I mean, this was on the first of May, so. Um, just before uh, President Raisi's visit to Syria. There's a lot going on in Syria and it has kind of ramifications really globally far more than before or far more um, obviously than before. So this was a continuation of the last consultative meeting of the GCC countries, the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council countries, Jordan, Iraq and Egypt that was held in Jeddah. The foreign ministers of Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt met in Amman, Jordan. And part of the discussions were, of course, the admission of uh, President, or, or rather Syria, back to the Arab League and the normalization of relations um, with President Assad. And then at the same time, so while this was going on in Amman, in Amman, sorry, in Jordan, um, a meeting between uh, Jai Jun special envoy of the Chinese government on Middle East affairs was going on in Damascus, the same palace where President Assad met President Raisi of Iran. Um, and the very strong message from President Assad during that meeting was that it was necessary to abandon um, the US dollar in trade and to pivot towards the Chinese yuan. What is very interesting now is, is Assad's involvement on, on a much wider range of issues uh, globally. And 
interesting schism, as I see it, between U.S. response to the normalization of relations with President Assad by many of their allies, including um, Saudi Arabia, Egypt is very much perceived as an ally of the U.S., um, Jordan, um, is, let's say, um, it's a little bit positive compared to uh, the rhetoric of U.S. officials uh, prior to um, February this year, actually, from the earthquake onwards, these changes started to take place. So the U.S. is encouraged that the Arab Syria meeting in Amman emphasized uh, shared priorities. The White House tells the National that it hopes the Assad regime, rather government, follows through on commitments, but U.S. is wary of normalization push. But then having a look at a couple of the comments in there, so President Joe Biden's administration said again it was encouraged after an Arab meeting in Amman to discuss normalizing ties with Damascus. Again, despite U.S. opposition to bringing uh, President Bashar al-Assad back into the fold. Um, and then uh, going down to the third paragraph, a White House National Security Council representative told the National, the Biden administration, again, using the word encouraged, to see the joint communique mention many priorities that we and our partners share. Interesting language here. And going on again, if we look at what... Um, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby had told reporters uh, last month, nothing's changed about our desire not to see anybody normalizing relations with Assad. We don't believe that's in anybody's interest in the region or beyond. But as Washington's Arab partners began engaging more with the Assad government, senior administration official Barbara Leaf expressed a softer tone. Our approach on that score is that we make sure this is very important that we get something for that engagement. Typical US policy here, absolutely no negotiation, absolutely no collaboration, cooperation or partnership, only what they get out of it. And then let's look at what um, the UK are doing. Now, bear in mind in 2017, when President Trump wanted to withdraw US, sorry, yes, US troops from Syria, what happened uh, UK media, led by The Guardian and The Times, uh, were very critical of uh, his announcement. And a few days later, the Khan Shehun chemical attack or alleged attack was carried out um, by the White Helmet organization that is predominantly uh, funded by the UK FDO. So here we have uh, Lord Tarek Ahmed of Wimbledon who I have to say has a history throughout the regime change war against Syria of obfuscating the role of the British government in the sponsorship, uh, equipping and promotion of the armed groups, including some of the most brutal like Jaish al-Islam, al-Sham and al-Qaeda um, affiliates. So uh, this was on, I think, the 28th of April. Um, so yesterday he welcomed the Syrian uh, task force at the uh, UK Foreign Office and they hosted a panel to discuss the continued need for accountability in Syria. So doubling down uh, on the accountability narrative, doubling down on the hybrid war pressure against Syria, including sanctions. A selection of Caesar photos were displayed showing the brutality of the Syrian regime. Their behavior has not changed. Very important language used here. Um, who is Lord Tarek of, uh, sorry, Tarek Ahmed of Wimbledon? Well, here is his Twitter profile. I don't really need to say much about the photos there. Minister of State, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Affairs, South Asia, 
um, MEA, North Africa, MENA, UN Human Rights, PM's Special Envoy for Preventing Sexual Violence. Moving on. So if we look uh, at the meeting that he held here, you have in the center of two uh, characters wearing balaclavas, very strange attire to appear in the Foreign Office. You have Moez Mustafa in the middle, who was responsible for bringing uh, McCain to Syria in 2013 and introducing him to a number of terrorist operatives, including um, the leader or the alleged leader of ISIS at the time. So he's had an instrumental role in running the narratives against Syria since 2011. And then let's have a look at Lord Ahmed's uh, statement. The Syrian people have endured unimaginable suffering, while the propaganda merchants of Damascus, Moscow, and Tehran, ultimate irony there, seek to rewrite history. The evidence we can see and hear today underlines where responsibility responsibility for these abuses principally lies with the Assad regime and its allies, Russia and Iran. I have to say, if people want to look up what the uh, Caesar documents are, there's an, a forensic investigation by journalist Rick Sterling um, that's available online. Just put in a search for Rick Sterling and Caesar, you'll find it, um, discrediting it. Most recently, the UK acted swiftly to respond to the devastating earthquakes of 6th of February, increasing support to our partners and other partners, of course, are effectively Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups in the Northwest uh, in Idlib, supported by the White Helmets, which is, is of course, an entity created um, by UK intelligence agencies. And we were able to provide a package of support worth more than 43 million. Well, that 43 million did not come into central Syria, of course, it went to the Northwest corner, which is dominated by Al-Qaeda. The UK also uses our position in the Human Rights Council and at the Security Council to highlight the scale of human rights abuses in Syria. We will not let up. So that gives you an idea of what UK foreign policy is compared to US. And this is a response from Peter Ford. Many people will already know him, former UK ambassador to Syria. And I also have to note that if people were writing to their MPs and, and requesting that sanctions be lifted on Syria, the round robin copy paste reply that they would have caught came from Lord Ahmed. So here Peter says, how good to hear that the Foreign Office is calling for accountability over all the war crimes committed in Syria. So can we now look forward to the FCO referring itself to the International Criminal Court for all the crimes it has committed against the Syrian people? such as support for terrorism, how appropriate that the stooges on stage with Lord Ahmed were fully masked up, well done, Foreign Office, such as targeting civilian populations with scattergun sanctions, some of the most vicious being precisely the Caesar variety celebrated by Lord Ahmed, such as working to prevent reconstruction in war and now earthquake damaged Syria, and he went on, Seriously, is this what it has come to, the Foreign Office seeing its policy of isolating Syria collapsing around its ears, putting on pathetic stunts about accountability when the Arab world is queuing up to normalize relations with Syria? Guys, you are just talking to yourselves. The world has moved on. Syria has stood defiant in the face of all your bullying and stands now on the edge of a remarkable recovery. Swallow your bile, Foreign Office. Stop being bad losers. Cut your losses by asking Syria for kind permission to reopen the embassy. I used proudly 
to head. Strong words from Peter Ford uh, and very necessary, I think. Yes. Thoughts? No, I think that pretty much says it all. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you very much. Uh, now, let's just uh, move to Sudan briefly. Uh, and, uh, well, an update from the British government yesterday on uh, uh, the evacuation. So they claim that the UK has completed its evacuation operation in Sudan, airlifting 2,450 people to safety. Thank you to all those involved. They say we're pressing for a ceasefire to bring about a permanent end to the violence and enable the delivery of humanitarian assistance to Sudan. Well, uh, they may claim that they're pressing for a ceasefire, but in the meantime, in the United States, Joe Biden has decided that sanctions are the right way to go. So he has uh, issued an executive order signed yesterday authorizing future sanctions. Now, the sanctions, the, the details of the sanctions are not yet public, so we don't know what is going to be imposed. But he said the war in Sudan is an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States. Do they have intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles, Patrick? Who? Sudan. Uh, not that I know so, of. <laughs> so could you explain how this is a threat to U.S. national security and foreign policy? Well, okay, maybe if they're worried about what Russia and China are doing in North Africa, then they might view it that way. But anyway, he went on to say the Sudanese people suffered 30 years under an authoritarian regime. There's that word again. But they never give up on their commitment to democracy or their hope for a better future. Uh, their dedication brought down a dictator only to endure a military takeover in October 2021, uh, and now more violence among factions fighting for control. Well, uh, in fact, uh, there was a ceasefire announced yesterday, a seven-day ceasefire from, sorry, from, uh, yes, yesterday. Uh, now, apparently, it's not 100%, uh, but uh, that, was, that was announced yesterday nonetheless. Uh, so the situation in Sudan rumbles on. In the meantime, the question in North Africa and the Sahel region of Africa in particular of uh, Russia's influence there and China's influence there, well, we get another clue because here's uh, Ibrahim uh, Touare, uh, who's uh, the interim president of Burkina Faso, very satisfied with their military cooperation with Russia. Uh, and besides, Burkina Faso's uh, cooperation with Russia dates back a long time uh, and we're wanting to develop it further and move it on. So uh, more and more North African countries uh, aligning themselves uh, towards the East rather than the West. Um, and uh, well, we, I suspect, Patrick, that what we will just see, as Vanessa has mentioned uh, on several occasions over recent weeks and months, is more and more destabilization in that region. Absolutely. Um, okay, uh, hate speech. Uh, well, Alex was talking a little about this uh, legislation uh, in, in Ireland on Wednesday's program, but you've got an update. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you guys uh, kicked that off on Wednesday, but this is just an unbelievable piece of, as you know, yes. an unbelievable, egregious piece of legislation. There's uh, Leo Varadka himself. Uh, so the hate speech consultation, they did kind of like with the online arms uh, in the UK, an open consultation. Uh, the public weighed in, Mike. Uh, let's look at what the public said uh, in Ireland about this crazy um, new hate speech legislation here. And I'm going to direct people to an excellent Irish uh, blogger. His name is Keith Woods. You should be following him on Twitter for updates on this and other uh, stories about what's going on in the Republic of Ireland. He says, here's your liberal democracy. 73% of the respondents to this online consultation, to the government's consultation on hate speech, the laws were opposed to the laws. So f this follows polls earlier this year that found that only 19% of the public wanted hate speech laws. So that's according to an RTE poll we'll show you in a minute. But despite this, almost 90% of the elected 
members of the Irish Parliament voted for this legislation. Uh, and so let's look at that for a minute. So as uh, Keith has said, there's the poll mic. Uh, that was March uh, the 2022. Only 19% support such uh, laws. That's RTE, so that's a mainline BBC equivalent uh, in Ireland here. And here is the vote. There it is. 110 for, 14 against. Pretty incredible. That's in, in the Doyle, so that's uh, Irish MPs. So it's the lower house, right? Yes. So what does that tell you? This we, we have this conversation before about the parliamentary party and then the public. Well, what it tells us is that uh, you know the idea of a representative democracy is, is turned on its head because the MPs, the politicians, are representing the policy to the people. They're not representing the people's opinion. Uh, about the policy. So if they were representing people's opinion, 90% of those MPs would have uh, rejected this legislation. So they're quietly voting that way. But what happens, Mike, when leading ministers come up and hold the public in total contempt of their views? Let's look at this clip from Leo Varadka. Uh, we've got uh, for you loaded up, but go ahead and roll this. Taoiseach, uh, your government conducted a public consultation regarding hate speech laws where citizens were asked to give their thoughts on the issue. And out of the thousands of responses from private individuals, over 70% were not supportive of such laws. And yet you're proceeding with them anyway. So my question is, why did your government bother to do a public consultation if you were just going to ignore the results? Well, we do public consultations because we think they're, they're good practice. Uh, it's a way to... Um, find out what people's thoughts are on, on issues um, and it's also you know a way to flesh out and highlight some of the issues that we may not have considered um, but we're also you know why is the fact that uh, the vast majority of people don't make submissions to public consultations we have to bear that in mind it's only a small portion of the population that participate in these things so it's not necessarily reflective of public opinion uh, and also where why is the fact that very often uh, submissions are organized or campaign groups will organize responses so uh, we're clear with that too but but why hold why hold the consultation if the the end result is just going to be disregarded on the basis that it's not representative of public opinion what's the point of it then well, well the point is that we're a democracy and in ireland we have elections and decisions are made by the government and the elected parliament they're not made on foot of public consultations or opinion polls that's not what they're about um they're about testing the temperature so is, so is it just for show then no so we don't want a, a referendum on a constitution in the EU. Uh, public votes against it. Uh, so we'll just hold it again and we'll just keep holding it until we get the right answer. This is the same attitude. Exactly the same thing. So there's Leo Varadka. So he, he's, he defends disregarding the results of this public consultation on hate speech. Um, and he's arguing that these consultations are hijacked by uh, campaigning groups. So, and the, they're not reflective of public opinion. So they're totally worthless, according to Leo Varadka. I mean, it's so cynical. Yes. It's unbelievable. And I really, uh, I feel for the people of Ireland that they have to endure uh, this government. It's well, of course they don't have to. And uh, it's about time the people of Ireland uh, stood up and got rid of this crowd. Well, they have, a, they have a little problem in Ireland, Mike, that you might be familiar with. The amendment in 1959 to the Irish Constitution, what's it called? First past the post. It makes it kind of difficult to see the sweeping changes that we see uh, in the uh, houses in uh, European parliaments, for instance. Well, okay. But uh, that, that's one of the, the problems. It's a, it's a lock there. Uh, with the the two the three party duopoly, you could say, uh, in control of uh, the Irish government, there, incredible, yep. incredible. Okay, well, look, sticking on the censorship issue, 
Uh, let's bring this on screen now. In uh, Utah in the United States, Pornhub, the pornography website, has decided to block access to users in Utah uh, because, uh, well, because the uh, Utah state uh, legislature is bringing legislation in which requires uh, age verification um, before you can access adult websites. Now, uh, if we look at the sort of the two sides of the argument on this, uh, this is one, uh, that pornography should not be available to children, and so we need to legislate to force companies to ensure that it's not available to children. Uh, the other side of the argument is it's parents' responsibility to police their children's use of the internet. Um, and uh, so we'll, we'll, well, we'll talk about this a little bit in a second. So here is the legislation itself, online pornography viewing age requirements. This is a 2023 general session, uh, and uh, the sponsor is uh, Todd D. Weller. So that legislation is going through at the moment. This is all about age verification on adult websites. And I just want to remind everybody, of course, this is absolutely a key part of the uh, UK's online safety bill. I've put it fourth on my list here, uh, age verification. Uh, and where does this lead? It absolutely leads to digital ID. It can lead to, to no other destination. Now, if we see uh, websites like Pornhub uh, that many people use, no matter what you think about it, many people use these sites. Um, if you see that those types of websites starting to remove themselves from local internet, we're starting to see the balkanization of the internet, number one. If we start to see end-to-end -end encryption banned, as the online safety bill is arguing for, then we start to see Signal and WhatsApp and organizations like this starting to withdraw from local internet. Uh, and we start to see the balkanization of the internet. And if people don't want to see that, then there's going to be demand for some form of solution. And the solution, as I say, is going to be uh, digital ID. Now, just uh, as a comment on the, on the pornography industry, um, I just want to remind everybody, back in 2014, uh, the UK column came under attack from a little organization called ATVOD, the Authority for Television on Demand. Um, so if you look at the first paragraph of this article, uh, uh, it says, last Wednesday, all video on demand content for which the UK column had editorial responsibility was removed from YouTube. Uh, and this website, that's UK column website, following demands for regulation by Atvod, a subsidiary of Ofcom. Now, we took them on on this, uh, but we also had quite a bit of communication from uh, representatives of the pornography industry in the UK because they had been uh, they had been in communications with Atvod for quite a long time before we had, and their view was that Advod was attempting to regulate the entire internet. Now, Advod, of course, disappeared uh, following uh, its fight with us, um, and the responsibilities that it held were brought back into Ofcom. But the, 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 the policy that Advod represented at that time hasn't gone away, uh, and Ofcom is going to become the regulator of the entire internet. And we might not like, as individuals, what organizations like Pornhub do. But the fact is, if we are willing to accept legislation in order to put limitations on what these types of organizations can do, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, the, the, I, at the beginning of that, I showed two sides to the argument. Uh, parents might say, well, we can't watch what our kids are doing all the time. A very simple solution to this problem would be if you want to legislate, Legislate to make all adult websites uh, operate under a, a top-level domain. Let's say whatever Pornhub dot right? And then you legislate to make sure that the internet service providers provide a, 
uh, a method for parents to simply switch off access to all XXX websites. Uh, and, and that will do, go, well, that would go a very long way uh, to, to solving the problem, but neither the pornography industry nor governments want to do that because, of course, pornography industry is being used as the sledgehammer uh, for people because a lot of people disagree with it and they're willing to accept the digital ID that comes along as a result of this. It's, it's, it's a very interesting conversation that needs to be had around this issue. Well, you can do cable boxes used to do that with adult content, Mike. So if the access was restricted, um, you had to have, it was very much, you had to opt in, subscribe. Yes. It wasn't uh, going on the same broadcast waves as everything else. So it's not like this is an impossible thing, but it, just like online harms, using the children uh, uh, harms angle in order to basically uh, do a broad brush stroke and censorship. And I'm gonna say the age verification thing is already being used to censor so much content on YouTube. If there's a video that YouTube doesn't want to be seen, they'll slap an age verification yes. on yes. it. So it's already being used. So the, the real danger here, Mike, is gonna expand the, age, the use of this age verification roadblock, if you will, in order to make a lot of content of invisible, including just political content that the establishment doesn't like, and they'll go and put pressure on YouTube and Google to shut that down. I might also add that Utah is dominated by Mormons, so uh, sort very much, uh, you know, and evangelical Christians. So that that's the dominant political mode yeah. uh, in that state. But this is just an incredibly dangerous, slippery slope. And I think you've made some really good suggestions there. I hope someone's listening uh, in the decision-making uh, decision that the uh, role that they can do something sensible yes. on this. Yes. Okay. Let, let's just end with this. Um, so Newsweek has got this headline, How King Charles Overcame Scandal and Tragedy to Reach Coronation. Well, of course, he hasn't overcome scandal and tragedy at all. Uh, his Prince Harry is, is that that whole thing is a, a like an episode of the Kardashians. And, and as for the his brother Prince Andrew, I mean that issue has not gone away, uh, and so on. But I just wanted to end on this uh, little point here because the question is why was the sixth of May chosen um, as the date of the uh, coronation? Uh, well, we should remember that of course that this is the birthday of Artemis, the Greek god, um, and uh, well. Unfortunately, the Roman equivalent of Artemis is Diana. Now, people may find that as a coincidence uh, that, that that particular day was chosen. Uh, I have, I'm a bit more cynical about that. I've, I think the day was very carefully chosen. There's a little message uh, in there. And I just want to thank the person who, uh, who sent that to me yesterday uh, because I thought that was uh, just an interesting uh, observation. They do like their esoteric symbolism, don't they? They absolutely do, yes. yes. Um, okay, let's leave it there for today. I want to say thank you very much to, uh, to Patrick, to Freddie, and to Vanessa for joining us today. Uh, we'll be back, Vanessa and I will be back for some extra in a couple of minutes' time. Patrick has another commitment, so uh, we will see you in a few minutes if you're a UK call member. Otherwise, have a great weekend, and we'll see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Bye-bye.